We welcome you to the media ministry of Denton Bible Church. We're going to be in Philippians uh, chapter 1, but we're going to do something actually special tonight. Um, <clears throat> there are uh, pillars in my life that have, that have impacted me, and, and I just can't go back from them. And these pillars are, are men in particular, and some women that I've just read their biographies, and, and just even characters in the Bible, where I just I read the biographies, and, and I can't remain the same. I'm just different as a result of it. Um, I was going through seminary, and I was, uh, you know, energetic, passionate, and uh, the languages were catching up with, with ministry, and I decided to step away from a THM and pursue a different degree, and, and I um, was kind of, you know, satisfied with that decision, and then uh, was reading through William Carey's biography and uh, talked about his love for the languages, in particular Hebrew, and I said, you know what, I'm going to go back. And I'll go back to the THM. Had a guy named John Hardison encourage me and, and help me greatly. And I transferred back into the THM and finished that in 2018 because of a biography. So it, it pretty incredible. So it went from a, about a three-year degree to a six-year degree. So biographies double your uh, time in school, by the way, uh, sounds like, uh, and money, but that's okay. Uh, no, it's good. And so biographies have been a pillar for me in my life, um, instrumental. Uh, Mel Sumrall will be that for me. Uh, Connie Cohn wrote his biography. And uh, there are people that you look to and you say, they did it. And so the question that I want to answer tonight is a simple question. Uh, what is the Christian life? What is the Christian life? And when you look at Philippians 1.21, this is Paul's autobiography. It's really what it is. He's, he's writing from, from prison. He's, um, he's destitute. He sees the world in a different lens than he used to see it. And he's saying, for me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. And this is, this is Paul's autobiography. This is what he says of himself. And the question I have is, how did he get there? Obviously, the work of the Spirit of God in his life, and, and we're going to touch on that, but how did he get to that place where he said, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain? And I think we're going to see that in this biography. I've chosen to take us to Hudson Taylor tonight. And what I'm going to do is just something real special. I'm going to read a lot, um, but I want you just to listen to this story of a man uh, that committed his life to China. He committed himself to this mission field that at the time was, was just untapped. And, uh, and we're going to see what God can do to encourage all of us as we look at this individual, uh, Hudson Taylor. So what I want to do is just simply ask the question again, what is the Christian life? What is the vision that we could have in the Christian life, like Paul says, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain? How does that transition into my everyday practical life? We're going to see how it transitioned into Hudson Taylor's life. What were the influences that the Lord used in a person, this person or that person, or a family tree, to shift from a pursuit of normal pursuits in the life that are presented to us, in a life that is presented to us, some might say comfort, to a world of sacrifice. From worldly stature to yieldedness. When does that shift occur? What does it look like? Our pastor that started our church transitioned from a steel mill engineer at, 52, at 48 years old to Dallas, Texas and finished DTS at 52. Were you the, were you the oldest grad at that time? At that time, the oldest grad, what, what was it 
that gripped him, because he's like us, he hears the same preaching that we hear, he has the same Bible that we hear, and everybody's story is going to be different, but what was it that made that shift of yieldedness? And we're going to see some of that tonight in Hudson Taylor. And so today, that's what I want to look at. So Hudson Taylor was born May of 1832. Imagine what's brewing in America at this time. He died in June of 1905, 73 years old. So from his perspective in England, this is where he was born, he's a British individual, he was seeing the world in in a different way. How did he see the world is the question that I want to look at tonight. How do we walk in the Christian life? He was a British Protestant Christian missionary to China and the founder of China Inland Mission, now OMF International. He traveled to China 11 times, not by plane, but by big boats, over his 51 years of ministry to China. During the China Inland Mission Society that he began, he was responsible for bringing over 800 missionaries to the country that began 125 schools and directly resulted in, this is their numbers, 18,000 Christian conversions, as well as the establishment of more than 300 stations of work with more than 500 local helpers in 18 provinces of China. What, got, what gripped this individual so much that this came out? Some reports indicate that he raised $4 million by faith following George Mueller, if you're familiar with George Mueller, who started the orphanage and would just pray, God, bring us sufficient funds. And uh, he, never, he never asked for money. There's nothing wrong with that. That was his calling. That was his pursuit. And God supplied all of his needs. Same thing with Hudson Taylor. <clears throat> and developed a witnessing Chinese church of 125,000. He baptized over 50,000 Chinese people. Taylor was known for his sensitivity to the Chinese culture and zeal for evangelism. He adopted wearing the native Chinese clothing, even though this was rare among missionaries at that time. And because there continued to be so many uh, Chinese to reach, Taylor instituted radical policies to reach them. He sent unmarried women into the interior, a move criticized by veterans. It's hard to, to imagine this, but this is in the middle 1800s, this is occurring. <clears throat> His boldness knew no bounds. In 1881, he asked God for 70 missionaries, and by the close of 1884, he got 76. In late 1886, Taylor prayed for another 100, and within a year, November 1887, he had 102 candidates that had been accepted for service. He would say, quote, China is not to be won by Christ Excuse me, China is not to be won for Christ by quiet, ease-loving men and women. He wrote, the stamp of men and women we need is such as will put Jesus, China, and souls first and foremost in everything and at every time. Even life itself must be secondary. He was a man who faced tremendous loss and tragedy. His wife, Maria, died at age 33, 12 years they were married. And four of eight children died before they reached age 10. Hudson did remarry and lost his second wife, Jeannie, a year before he died. He faced much spiritual and physical difficulty, facing defamation, depression, mental and physical breakdowns, and severe health problems. However, he pressed on. At one point, Taylor quoted this. He says, my wife's love stood between me and suicide. So this is a man who knew pain, who knew struggle. This was a man who was not immune, freed from, or in some way prevented from facing and plotting through possibly life's greatest trials and tragedies, but he continued 
One historian summarizes the theme of his life by saying, no other missionary in the 19th century since the Apostle Paul had a wider vision and has carried out more systematized planning of evangelism in broad geographical area than Hudson Taylor. When I came to Didn't Bible Church um, years ago, and, and I was just, a, just working in the, in the corporate world, um, and was going to a Bible study that Tommy was leading on, on Tuesday mornings, and then uh, he and I started meeting through a series of um, him doing a discipleship, and then he and I started meeting for a discipleship, he would ask me something that I'd never been asked before. He would say, what countries are you claiming for Christ? And I, I said, no one's ever asked me for that. I've never claimed a country for Christ. The vision, there's something that got a hold of Tommy Nelson, that got a hold of Pastor Mel Sumrall that changed his vision. This individual had the same vision. He was able to preach in several varieties of Chinese and was able to help prepare a colloquial edition of the New Testament. Between his work ethic and his absolute trust in God, he inspired thousands to forsake the comforts of the West to bring the Christian message to the vast and unknown interior of China. Though mission work in China was interrupted by the communist takeover in 1949, the CIM continues to this day under the name Overseas Missionary Fellowship. Y'all know Eric Little? Uh, Chinese missionary. So what are the influences, the question, what are the influences that led the Lord, that the Lord used Hudson Taylor to turn him from a pursuit of normalcy to what we would call the Christian life, to what Christ would call the Christian life? What was it? There's five things I'm going to touch on. The first is prayer, okay? So before he was born, his parents prayed this, Lord, we see the gospel need for China. Would you give us a child who could be a missionary to this foreign land? Hudson would run from his parents' prayer for a time, sowing wild oats, but God would soon answer the prayer of his mother. There were setbacks, and time would, be, would pass before he would convert. So I'm going to read some of Hudson Taylor's thoughts on prayer. All thought of my becoming a missionary was abandoned for many years by my dear parents on account of the feebleness of my health. When the time came, however, God gave increased health, and my life has been spared and strength has been given for not a little toilsome service, both in the mission field and at home, while many stronger men and women have succumbed. While in the state of mind, teenage years, I came in close contact with persons holding skeptical and infidel views and accepted their teaching. Only too thankful for some of escape from the doom which, if my parents were true and right, awaited the unrepentant. It may seem, it may seem strange to say, but I have often felt thankful for the experience of this time of skepticism. The inconsistencies of Christian people who, while professing to believe their Bibles, were yet content to live just as they would if there were no such book, had been one of the strongest arguments of my skeptical companions. Isn't that fascinating? And I frequently felt at that time, felt at that time and said that if I pretended to believe the Bible, I would at any rate attempt to live by it, putting it fairly to the test, and if it failed to prove true and reliable, would throw it overboard altogether. These views I retain when the Lord was pleased to bring me to himself. And I think I may say that since then I have put God's words to the test. Certainly it has never failed me. I have never had any reason to regret the confidence I have placed in its promises or to deplore following the guidance I have found in its directions. So did y'all see that? The skeptic friends were those who looked at Christians and said, they have a book that says one thing and they have a life that says another. And that was their argument against Hudson Taylor. And he said, I'm not going to do that. That won't be me. So that was prayer. 
conversion. The day the Lord's answer, the, the, the day the Lord answered his parents' prayer, it had arrived. This is Hudson Taylor again. Let me tell you how God answered the prayers of my family for my conversion. On a day which I shall never forget, when I was about 15 years of age, my dear mother, being away from home, I had a holiday, and in the afternoon looked to my father's library to find some book with which to while away the unaccompanied hours. Nothing attracting me, I turned over a little basket of pamphlets and selected from amongst them a gospel tract which looked interesting, saying to myself, quote, there will be a story at the commencement and a sermon or moral at the close. I will take the former and leave the latter for those who like it. I'll take the story and, and forget about the sermon. I sat down to read the little book in an utterly unconcerned state of mind, believing indeed at the time that if there were any salvation, it was not for me. And with a distinct intention to put away the tract as soon as it should seem tedious, I may say that it was not uncommon in those days to call conversion becoming serious, quote, and judging by the faces of some of its professors, it appeared to be a very serious matter indeed. This guy's funny. Would it not be well if the people of God had always telltale faces showing the blessings and gladness of salvation so clearly that unconverted people might have to call conversion becoming joyful instead of becoming serious? Little did I know at the time what was going on in the heart of my dear mother, 70 or 80 miles away. She rose from the dinner table that afternoon with an intense yearning for the conversion of her boy and feeling that absent from home and having more leisure than she could otherwise secure, a special opportunity was afforded her to plead and to pray to God on my behalf. She went to her room, turned the key in the door, resolved not to leave that spot until her prayers were answered. Hour after hour did that dear mother plead for me until at length she could pray no longer, but was constrained to praise God for, what, for that which his spirit had taught her already had been accomplished, the conversion of her only son. I, in the meantime, have been led away, have been led in the way. I mentioned to take up this little track, and while reading it, was struck with the sentence, the finished work of Christ. Why does the author use this expression? It came to his mind. Why not say the atoning or the propitiatory work of Christ? Immediately the words, it is finished, suggested themselves to my mind. What was finished? At once I replied, a full and perfect atonement and satisfaction for sin. The debt was paid by the substitute. Christ died for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Then came the thought, if the whole work was finished and the whole, day, whole debt paid, what was there left for me to do? And this dawned, and with this dawned the joyful conviction as light was flashed into my soul by the Holy Spirit that there was nothing in the world to be done but to fall down on one's knees and accepting the Savior and his salvation to praise him forevermore. Thus, while my dear mother was praising God on her knees in her chamber, I was praising him in the old warehouse to which I had gone alone to read, my leisure, to read at my leisure this little book. Not many months after my conversion, having a leisure afternoon, I retired to my own chamber to spend it largely in communion with God. For what service I was accepted, I knew not, but a deep conscientiousness that I was no longer my own took possession of me. See how the prayer conversion, now something's changing in his heart. Something took a hold of him. It gripped him. And this is the third point, is his call to service and motivation. His heart burned with a single passion, lit for the Lord and his word, and his life changes. 
Two or three years later, favorable propositions were made to me with regard to medical study on the condition of my becoming an apprentice to the medical man who was my dear friend and teacher. Within a few months of this time of consecration, the impression was formed into my soul that it was China, that the Lord, that's where he wanted me to go. It seemed to me highly probable that the work to which I was thus called might cost my life, for China was not then open as it is now, but few missionary societies had at that time workers in China, and but few books on the subject of China missions were accessible to me. I learned, however, that the, congreg- that the congregational minister of my native town possessed a copy of Medhurst, China, and I called upon him to ask a loan of the book. This he kindly granted, asking me why I wished to read it. I told him that God had called me to spend my life in missionary service in that land. Quote, and how do you propose to go there, he inquired. I answered that I did not at that time know, that it seemed to me probable that I should need to do as the twelve and the seventy had done in Judea, go without a purse or scrip relying on him who had called me to supply all my need. Kindly placing his hand upon my shoulder, the minister replied, Ah, my boy, as you grow older, you will get wiser than that. Such an idea would do very well in the days when Christ himself was on, was on earth, but not now. I have grown older since then, but not wiser. I am more than ever convinced that if we were to take the directions of our master and the assurances he gave to his first disciples more fully as our guide, we should find them to be just as suited to our times as to those in which they were originally given. Isn't that good? Medhurst's book on China emphasized the value of medical missions there, and this directed my attention to medical studies as a valuable mode of preparation. I began to take more exercise in the open air to strengthen my physique. My feather bed I had taken away and sought to dispense with many other home comforts as I could in order to prepare myself for rougher lines of life. I began also to do what Christian work was in my power, in the way of the gospel tract distribution, Sunday school teaching, and visiting the poor and sick as opportunity afforded. See how he talks about something and then he begins to do something. And that's, that's fascinating because we often, if you're like me, we can, we can have the vision but without the practice. He begins to employ these practices. Before leaving home, my attention was drawn to the subject of setting apart the first fruits of all one's increase and proportionate part of one's possessions to the Lord's service. I thought it well to study the question with my Bible in hand before I went away from home. I was thus led to the determination to set apart not less than one-tenth of whatever monies I might earn or become possessed of for the Lord's service. The salary I received as a medical assistant in Hull at that time now referred to would have allowed me to do this with ease. After much thought and prayer, I was led to leave the comfortable quarters and happy circle in which I was now residing and to engage in little lodging in the suburbs, a sitting room and bedroom in one, undertaking to my room to myself. In this way, I was able to, without difficulty to tithe the whole of my income, and while I felt the change, while I felt it change a good deal, it was attended with no small blessing. I saw further that through the New Testament, the coming of our Lord was the great hope of his people and was always appealed to as the strongest motive for the consecration and service. And as the greatest comfort in trial and affliction, I learned, too, that the period of his return for his people was not yet revealed, and that it was their privilege from day to day and from hour to hour to live as men who would wait for the Lord, that thus living, it was immaterial, so to speak, whether he should or should not come at any particular hour. The important thing was to be so ready for him as to be able, whenever he might appear, to give an account of one's stewardship with joy and not with grief. The effect of this blessed hope was a thoroughly practical one, and it led me to consider carefully through my little library to see if there were any books that were not needed or likely to be of further use somewhere else. 
and to examine my small wardrobe to be quite sure that it contained nothing I should be so sorry to give an account should the master arrive. The result was that the library was considerably diminished to the benefit of some poor neighbors and to the far greater benefit of my own that I found I had articles of clothing also which might be put to better advantage in their directions. See how his life is changing? A life yielded. The fourth point is a silver coin. Learning to live with open hands. This is Hudson. It was to me a very grave matter to contemplate going out to China, far away from all human aid, there to depend upon the living God alone for protection, supplies, and the help of every kind. I felt that one's spiritual muscles required strengthening for such an undertaking. There was no doubt that if faith did not fail, God would not fail. But then what if one's faith should prove insufficient? I had not at that time learned that, quote, even if we believe not, he abideth faithful, for he cannot deny himself. And I was consequently a very serious, it was consequently a very serious question to my mind, not whether he was faithful, but whether I had strong enough faith to warrant my embarking on the enterprise set before me. I thought to myself, quote, when I get out to China, I shall have no claim on anyone for anything. My only claim will be on God. How important, therefore, to learn before leaving, before leaving England to move man through God by prayer alone. This is what he said. A commitment was made to trust that God would remind his boss to pay Hudson Taylor's salary. Hudson determined that this would build his faith in trusting God to meet his every need. Well, his boss forgot to pay his salary, and thus he was left without pay, hungry, and only a single silver coin in his pocket. That Sunday was a very happy one. As usual, my heart was full of, of brimming over with blessing. After attending service in the morning, my afternoons and evenings were filled with gospel work in the various lodging houses. I was accustomed to visit in the lowest parts of the town. After concluding my last service about 10 o'clock that night, a poor man asked me to go and pray for his wife, saying that she was dying. I readily agreed and on the way to his house asked him why he had not sent for the priest. And his accent told me he was an Irishman. He had done so, he said, but the, but the priest refused to come without a payment, which the man did not possess and the family was starving. Immediately it occurred to my mind that all the money I had in the world was a solitary silver coin. Moreover, I had only food for dinner that night and breakfast the next morning. I certainly had nothing for dinner on the coming day. Somehow or other, there was at once to be a stoppage in the flow of joy in my heart. But instead of reproving myself, I began to reprove the poor man, telling him that it was very wrong to have allowed matters to get into such a state as he described, and that he ought to have applied to the relieving officer. His answer was that he had done so, and he was told to come over at 11 o'clock the next morning, but that he feared his wife might not live through the night. Ah, thought I, quote, if I had only had several gold coins instead of the silver coin, how gladly would I give these poor people one shilling of it. But to part with the silver coin was far from my thoughts. I little dreamed that the real truth of the matter simply was put that I could not trust God with this silver coin, and I was not yet prepared to trust him alone. This led me down a court, this led me, this man led me down a court down which I followed him with some degree of nervousness. I had found myself there before, and at my last visit had been very roughly handled. While my gospel tracts were torn to pieces, he got thrown out. And I received such a warning not to come again that I felt no little concern about it. Still, it was the path of duty, and I followed on. Up a miserable flight of stairs into a wretched room, he led me. And oh, what a sight there presented itself to my eyes. Four or five poor children stood about, their sunken cheeks and temples all telling unmistakably the story of slow starvation. And lying on a wretched pallet was a poor, exhausted mother with a tiny infant, 36 hours old, moaning rather than crying at her side, for it too seemed spent and failing. 
Ah, thought I, if I had gold coins instead of a silver coin, how gladly should they at least have the half of it? But still a wretched unbelief prevented me from obeying the impulse to relieve their distress at the cost of all that I possessed. It would scarcely seem strange that I was unable to say much comfort to these poor people. I needed comfort myself. I began to tell them, however, that they must not be cast down, that though their circumstances were very distressing, there was a kind and loving Father in heaven. But something within me said, you hypocrite, telling these unconverted people about a kind and loving Father in heaven, and you're not prepared yourself? You're not prepared yourself to trust him with a silver coin? I was nearly choked. How gladly would I have compromised with conscience if I had those gold coins? I would only have given the more coins if I had them thankfully and kept the rest. But I was not yet prepared to trust in God alone and to give my one silver coin. To talk was impossible under these circumstances, yet strange to say, I thought I should have no difficulty in praying. Prayer was a delightful occupation to me in those days. Time thus spent never seemed wearisome, and I knew nothing of a lack of words. I seemed to think all I should have to do with this, with these people, is to kneel down and engage in prayer, and that relief would come to them and to myself together. Quote, you asked me to come by your house to pray with your wife? I said to them, I said to the man, well, let us pray. And I knelt down, but scarcely had I opened my lips, our Father who art in heaven, then conscience said within me, dare you mock God. Dare you kneel down and call him Father with that silver coin in your pocket. Such a time of conflict came upon me then as I have never experienced before or since. How I got through that form of prayer, I do not know. And whether the words uttered were connected or disconnected, I cannot tell. But I arose from my knees in great distress of mind. The poor father turned to me and said, quote, you see what a terrible state we are in, sir. If you can help us, for God's sake, do. Just then the word flashed in my mind, quote, give to him that asketh of thee, End quote. And in the word of a king, there is power. I put my hand in my pocket and slowly drawing forth a silver coin, gave it to the man, telling him that it might seem a small matter for me to relieve them, seeing that I was comparatively well off, but that in parting with that coin, I was giving him my all. What I had been trying to tell him was indeed true. God really was a father and might be trusted. The joy all came back in full flood tide to my heart. I could say nothing and felt it then, felt it then, and the hindrance to blessing was gone, gone, I trust forever. Not only was the poor woman's life saved, but I realized that my life was saved too. And then he set sail for China, a five and a half month journey. This is the fifth point. The voyage was a very tedious one. Usually a breeze would spring up after sunset and last until about dawn. The utmost was made of it, but during the day, we lay still with the flapping sails, often dripping, drifting back and forth, losing a good deal of advantage we had gained during the night. This happened to me notably on one occasion when we were dangerously in close proximity to the north of New Guinea. Saturday night had brought us to a point of some 30 miles off the land, but during the Sunday morning service, which was held on deck, I could not fail to notice that the captain looked troubled and frequently went over to the side of the ship. When the service was ended, I learned from him the cause. A four-knot current was carrying us rapidly toward the sunken reef, and we were already so near that it seemed improbable that we should get through the afternoon in safety. After after dinner, the longboat was put out, and all hands endeavored without success to turn the ship's head from the shore. As we, neared, uh, as we drifted nearer, we could see plainly the natives rushing about the sands and lighting fires everywhere. The captain's hook horn, hook, hook horn book informed him that these people were cannibals, and so that our position was not a little alarming. After standing back on the deck some time in silence, cap the captain said to me, well, we have done everything that can be done. We can only await the result. 
A thought occurred to me and I replied, no, there's one thing we haven't done yet. What is it, he queried. Four of us on board are Christians. I answered, let us each retire to his cabin and pray that God would give us a wind immediately. He can easily send it now as the sunset. I had a good, but I had a good uh, deal of relief and a season of prayer and then felt so satisfied that our request was granted that I could not continue asking and very soon went up again to the deck. The first man, a godless man, was in charge. I went over and asked him to let down the clues of the corner of the mainsail, which had been drawn up in order to lessen the useless flapping of the sails against the, ribbing, against the rigging. He answered, what would be the good of that? I told him that we had been asking a wind of God, that it was coming immediately, and we were so near the reef by this time that there was not a minute to lose. With a look of disbelief and contempt, he said with an oath that he would rather see a wind than hear of it. But while he was speaking, I watched his eye and followed up to the royal, the topmost cell. And there, sure enough, the corner of the cell began to tremble in the coming breeze. Don't you see the wind coming? Look at the royal, I exclaimed. No, it's only a cat paw, he rejoined, a mere puff of wind. Cat's paw or not, I cried, pray, let down the mainsail and let us have the benefit. This he was not slow to do. In another minute, the heavy tread of the men on the deck brought up the captain from his cabin to see what was the matter, and he saw the breeze. It did indeed come. In a few minutes, we were plowing our way six or seven knots an hour through the water, and the multitude of savages whom we had seen on the beach had no wreckage that night. We were, so, we were soon out of danger, We were soon out of danger, and though the wind was sometimes unsteady, we did not altogether lose it until the passing of the Pelu Islands. Thus God encouraged me to bring every variety of prayer to him, and to expect that he would honor the name of the Lord Jesus, and to give the help which each emergency required. Isn't that good? That's good. Let's, uh, let me just bring this, um, these thoughts to, uh, to some salient points. Seven points to take from that story, and we could have spent much more time. I just try to draw these, these things out. What are these things that made this individual who was just like you and me, had a mother and a father that prayed for him to go and take the gospel message to a place that didn't have it? had a father who had a library with the, with the tools to be able to read so there was a resource accessible to the gospel message, had responded to it, reading it, and then asking the questions logically from the skeptics that came to him and said, the Christian says this and the Christian does this. And he couldn't bring those two in juxtaposition. He couldn't make them work. He said, this has to be the same. These have to be the same. And so his life was changed. So number one point that I want to look at was he was a man surrendered to prayer and the filling up on God's word. So what does it look like to walk in the Christian life? What does a Christian life look like? What would it look like for me to engage in a daily Christian life? What is the practical Christian life so that I could say something like Paul said, for to me to live is Christ, to die is gain. How could he say that? How could he say that? In prison. Number one, he was a man surrendered to prayer and the filling up on God's word. Number two, his life had one purpose, that was to share the gospel to the unreached people of China. He had a vision that God had given him, and he did not waver in that vision. Number three, he lived a sacrificial life in every area, giving the Lord his first fruits. His life was a life of sacrifice. Number four, he learned to have faith by allowing situations for faith. If you're like me, and, and I can do this at times, not all the time, but I can mitigate the challenges very quickly. He's not creating them necessarily, but he's allowing them. These aren't inconveniences. These are moments to trust God. Number five, he was content with the life and the lot that the Lord had given him. I think if we take anything away, it's contentment. 
He was content with the life and the lot the Lord had given him. This was sufficient. This was enough. Number six, his tenacity was unwavering. An unwavering tenacity. Tenacious, tentacles, like an octopus, it doesn't let go. That's what tenacious means. You have a vision, you grip it, and you pursue it. You trust God for it. Number seven, he, like Paul, wanted more and more of Christ. He was never satisfied. That's the paradox of the Christian life, to be filled, Colossians 2, with the fullness of God, yet to be hungry. To be filled, yet to be hungry. The paradox of the Christian life. He understood this well. Ephesians 3.19 says, to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. In his book, Ian Bounds uses the following quote from Hudson Taylor in the context of answered prayer. Listen to this quote from Hudson Taylor. A young man had been called to the foreign field. He had not been in the habit of preaching, but he knew one thing, how to prevail with God. And going one day to a friend, he said, I don't see how God can use me on the field. I have no special talent. His friend said, my brother, God wants men on the field who can pray. There are too many preachers now and too few prayers. He went into his room in the early dawn and a voice was heard weeping and pleading for souls. All through the day, the shut door and the hush that prevailed made you feel like you were walking, you needed to walk softly for a soul was wrestling with God. Yet to this home, hungry souls would flock, drawn by some irresistible power, All the mystery, the mystery was unlocked. In the secret chamber, lost souls were pleaded for and claimed. The Holy Ghost knew just where they were and sent them along. Isn't that amazing? So what is the practical Christian life? I'm going to give you all a definition. Tommy gave this to me in staff meeting a few years back. He preached it at the men's conference probably a couple years ago, I think Preston was saying, and, um, and this was actually from Howard Hendricks. Howard Hendricks came up with this definition, and, and it, to me, it's, it's one of the most incredible, succinct uh, definitions in understanding the Christian life. The first point is the Christian life is the process I'm going to read the whole thing to you. The process of the life of Christ produced in the believer by the Holy Spirit, through the word of God, invading every area of human existence in response with obedient faith. So what is the Christian life? What would lead Hudson Taylor to say these things? We looked at all those aspects. What would lead Paul to say these things? It's the process. Paul says, I have learned the secret to being content. Learned the secret. It's the process of the life of Christ produced in the believer Birthed, James 1, to a new life, 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Produced in the believer by the Holy Spirit, Titus 3, 5 to 7. Regeneration occurs in the Spirit of God. Through the word of God, thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path, invading every area of human existence. Ephesians 5, 15 to 16. Be careful then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise. Be careful, that means be circumspect, be aware of all your surroundings, invading every area of human existence, responding with, or in response with, obedient faith. That we have all the information, we have all the knowledge we could ever need. Do we understand what that knowledge is useful for? And then do we act on it? And I think I'm looking out here and I see various stages of life. In this, in this congregation, singles, marrieds, widowers, maybe widows, 
maybe divorcees, um, kids that have run away, kids that are estranged, uh, difficulty with relationships at work, challenges with people inside the church, challenges with your own immediate family, hopes, joys, dreams, longings for the future, things that you could see God doing in your life, the, the vision that God has put on your heart to accomplish on his behalf, that you're just getting started in ministry and you're looking forward to what God might do. What's gonna keep you tenacious when the friendly fire comes in inside the church? What's gonna keep you tenacious when the relationship goes sour or it's no longer there after 50, 60 years of being there? What's gonna keep you pressing in, leaning in to the truth of God, to the truth of his word? What's gonna keep you praying for those children that are estranged, that God would bring them back? What's gonna keep you there? What's gonna keep you, what's gonna hold you? It's a process that God does through his Holy Spirit, producing in us the life of Christ, Romans 8, 28 and 29. He's conforming us to his image through the word of God, which assumes that every day God's word is opened, not out of rote habit, but out of necessity. I understand that I am a, I am a life yielded to this very living, breathing, active word of God. Where else would I go? Who else would I look to? The Bereans, when they got the word preached to them, said, let me test it and see. This is what we have to be. And then we, like Galen Richter, who is facing one of the most atrocious cancer situations that I've, I've ever been a part of. He's going to have, if you're familiar with Galen, he's one of our elders. He's going to have L2, L3 removed. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's a tumor that's about three inches by five, five inches wrapped around his uh, spine and his nerve. Um, he's got nerves all throughout, organs it's touching. There's going to be three, two or three surgeries that are going to occur. It's in the lungs now. And so that means that there's going to be uh, a different surgery that will occur down here. Uh, I've walked with Galen for almost 10 years now and been by his side through this whole process as, as well as many of you have as well. And, and I've been on the phone with him when he's writhing in pain, crying out to God. What holds him when no and the best opioid you can get mitigate the pain? What holds him? He's laid this foundation, the life of Christ, produced in him by the Holy Spirit through the word of God. The Bible continues to come out of this man's mouth. He said, I said, you're an inspiration. And not only that, he said when he got wheeled to the hospital and got left for two hours because he was forgotten and had no pain meds waiting to be admitted into the ER, uh, he was crying out in pain. No one could hear him. A couple hours just crying out, no food. And this is the reality of, of the situations that we face. We're not prepared for the end of life. It's so hard. And some of you have walked through that with people. It is so hard. It is so hard, and I pray God bless you, and you have a pastor or somebody to minister to you in that season of life. But what sustained him is what, is what sustained Hudson Taylor as well. Obviously, God, his word, but his wife, the relationship that was there. She was there with him. And so we don't know what God's going to use in our lives, each of you, singles, marrieds, empty nesters. But would we not look to a Hudson Taylor as a pillar would we not look to a Paul as a pillar? Would we not say that was an individual who was like me, weak, but made a decision? My life will be yielded to God and his word, to his cause and to his people, and I'm gonna take this message wherever he leads me. 
Father, I thank you for this evening, Lord, just to stop and do something real unique, real different, something I've never done, just to read a biography. Consider what it is that you did something in a life that was not what he thought it would be. Losing two precious wives, losing five of his, of his children, four of his children before the age of 10. Pressing through that pain and loss. There's so much we could have covered. And how simple the lessons were of a silver coin. Will you yield this to me? Will you trust? And how like so many of us, Lord, we, we don't. We, we, just, we put our hands in our pocket and we grip tighter. And we say, no, this is my life. This is my way. And Jesus simply said to the rich man, you want to follow me, this is what you must do. And we know it's not the wealth, it's the heart. What is the heart so attracted to, Lord, in our church, so desirous of in our church that we can't let it go? The people that come here every week and they go out into their homes, what is so desirous in my heart that I cannot let it go? Lord, may we be a yielded people to you and trust you that when the storms come, and they will, that we stand because you have produced in us the life of Christ. And Lord, if we don't stand, that there's a brother or sister who can come alongside us and say, I'm here with you to stand on your behalf until you can get your feet up. May accountability be something that also presents itself, Lord, in times like these. And Lord, help us as we navigate into this future, Lord, this unknown future. We look at the world around us and we say, not sure what's gonna happen in 10 years. But we can say this, we're yielded to you. In Jesus' name, amen.